extended to us adults, right? So the kids are challenging us, so we need to step up to that challenge. We need to be inviting people to come and having those gospel conversations. I want to see some of you all after church today, maybe, and definitely next week, putting some of those ping pong balls there in that shadow box. Uh, we love a good competition, don't we? And if you watched the Super Bowl Sunday night, you saw a pretty good competition, didn't you? It got really exciting there at the end, you know? But, but who won, Shelly? Who won? Kansas City Chiefs won. I know Shelly was excited about that. You know, but let me ask you an honest question, though. How many of your lives were radically different Monday because the Chiefs won instead of the 49ers? Anybody? Other than maybe Shelly? I don't know. Probably not even Shelly, right? Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't make any difference in anybody's life, right? I mean, you didn't wake up richer on Monday morning or poor on Monday morning. And if you did either, you and I need to have a discussion after church. Not supposed to do that. No, it doesn't make any difference in our lives. So why do we get so wrapped up in who's going to win the Super Bowl or who won the SEC championship or, you know, who won the World Series? Why do we get so wrapped up in that stuff? You know, there are some fans that if their team doesn't do well, they get seriously depressed. And listen, I'm a Tennessee fan. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It happens. It's because we are hardwired to want to belong to something bigger than ourselves, aren't we? And for a lot of people, that's sports. For some people, it's politics. For other people, it's they like to, you know, I don't know, go march and protest. I don't know, that's kind of weird to me. But, you know, and for other people, it's they give themselves into a charitable cause or they're a part of a, of a hobby of some kind. We love the idea of big, grand things happening all around us. Who doesn't want to be a part of a team that's winning? It's doing great things. I love being a part of a church that's doing great things for the kingdom of God. But here's the catch. It's really easy for us to just say we're a part of something great. You know, it's like cheering on for your favorite football team. You sit on the sidelines. You cheer them on. But you never step foot on the field and contribute, do you? You stand on the sidelines and you cheer, but you never get out there on the court. And all too often, that happens in churches. We've become really good cheerleaders while doing very little to contribute to God's mission. We're really good at standing on the sidelines, throwing up our pom-poms and cheering while other people are on the front lines doing the hard work. And my hope is that through this Who's Your One campaign, we would stop being cheerleaders. We would stop being mere spectators, and we become contributors to the great movement of the mission of God right here in Thompson and McDuffie County. And it doesn't start with the masses. It starts with one. It starts with one person. We see this in the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus began His ministry in Galilee. And he went around to all these little towns in Galilee, teaching and healing. And as Jesus grew in popularity, not only did he attract huge crowds, he began to attract the watchful eye of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And Jesus would butt heads with them. And, and they didn't agree on a lot. And Jesus challenged their authority. He challenged, he challenged their interpretation of Scripture. Jesus said that these Pharisees were guilty of putting unnecessary burdens on people. For salvation, that they were actually keeping people away from God. And Jesus said, I'm here to offer a better way. I'm here to offer 
a better way of salvation. I'm here to offer myself. And that's where we are in Luke chapter 5. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 5, Jesus does something both miraculous and in the eyes of the Pharisees, blasphemous. Look with me, Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse 17. Now, some of the other gospel writers, Matthew and, and Luke and, or Matthew and Mark in particular, tell us that this happened in Capernaum. And if you come tonight, you'll hear all about Capernaum. I got to be there. I got to stand in the very place where this story took place. It says, One day as he was teaching Pharisees, teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men, and Mark's gospel tells us there were four of them, came carrying a paralytic man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Well, they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. There's a lot to unpack in this story about who Jesus is, what He came to do, about how people received or rejected Him. But what I want us to focus on this morning are those four friends. And learn from them how we can go from being just cheerleaders and spectators to being contributors to the mission of God. How can we, like them, bring our friends to Jesus? I want to look at four aspects of that today. The first is, these men had a mission these men had a mission. Mission drives us, doesn't it? Mission drives us as individuals. It drives us as cultures. You know, I know some families have like a family mission statement. Maybe you've got one at home and it's all painted, all artsy and hanging up over the fireplace or something. Churches have missions. Our church adopted a new mission statement this year. Maybe you could say it with me. Our mission statement is loving God, loving people, and making disciples of Jesus from all generations. Well, you guys did a great job. Oh, I forgot. It's up there on the... Yeah. Loving God, loving people, making disciples of Jesus from all generations. That's our church's mission statement. Companies and organizations have mission statements. They help to keep the employees and the leaders on course. Because if you get off course from your mission statement, then you're suddenly expending time and energy and resources on things that you're not supposed to be doing. You begin to drift. You lose focus of who you are. So companies have mission statements to keep them on course. I went online and found a few of them. I didn't know some of these. Like Walmart. Walmart's mission statement is, we save people money so they can live better. Maybe you've seen that on their logo. Save money, live better. That's their mission statement. Now whether you think they do a good job of that or not is debatable. But it's simple. 
it's clear. It's kind of inspiring if you're a Walmart employee. Why do you do what you do? Why are you that lone checkout person amidst 20 checkouts? Well, you're trying to save Walmart money so they can live better. I know, something like that. I don't know, maybe I'm getting confused. The American Red Cross has a really detailed mission statement to prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. That really kind of spells out the what, the when, the where, the why and the how and the who, doesn't it? It's all answered right there in their mission statement. Facebook's mission statement, to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. I thought it was to have cat videos and baby Yoda memes. I, I, you know, I, th- I thought that was their purpose statement, but that's their purpose statement. It's a good one. What about Jesus? Do you know Jesus had a purpose statement? In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Simple. Clear. Powerful. So that got me to thinking, what was the defining mission for these four friends in this passage? What was their vision? What was the thing they were hoping for and working toward? Well, I would say that if they had a friend that they wanted to see walk. And that vision drove them to bring their friend to Jesus. I want to ask you a very simple question today. What drives you? What moves you forward? Is it that you could have a good job? Is it that you could maybe someday retire early? Is it so that you could leave a good inheritance for your children? Those are all wonderful things. I think God even wants us to do some of those things. I think God wants you to have a rewarding job that provides for your family. I think God wants to help you provide for your family now and in the future. That's all fine. But let me put it to you this way. What spiritual and eternal things drive you? What is your mission? What kingdom dreams do you have? Are you dreaming about things that will move you in such a way that you're not just living for the moment, but you're living for eternity? What are the things in your life that are welling up inside of you for eternity's sake? Do they drive you? Do they push you forward? Parents, maybe for you it's that your children would come to faith in Christ. You know, if that's your mission, if that drives you, you know what that means, moms and dads? That means that every day you are praying and working hard for your children to fall in love with Jesus. For them to grasp the beauty of the gospel. Because that's what drives you. It's your mission. It defines you. Jim Cimbala, maybe you know that name. He's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. He's written a lot of books like Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. But did you know that he played college basketball for two different colleges? He played for the University of Rhode Island and the Naval Academy. Now, you think about a college athlete or even a professional athlete, they're driven, aren't they? You don't make it to that level of athletics without being driven. But when Jim Cimbala got to college, he sensed that God was calling him to something greater. He sensed that God was calling him to ministry. And later on in one of his books, he wrote about how that call became the defining mission of his life. He said, I despaired at the thought. I might let my life slip by without God showing Himself mightily on my behalf. He wanted mission, vision, drive. Aristotle said that the soul never thinks without a picture. You've got a picture. 
being painted in your life right now about who you are and what your purpose in life is. You may not even realize that picture is there, but you've got that picture. It's driving you. It's a vision that moves you. It's a mission that defines you. What is it? I heard one pastor say that if the size of your vision doesn't intimidate you, it's probably an insult to God. What is your vision? What is driving you for the kingdom? Who is that person that weighs heavy on your heart? In this passage, the driving force for their motivation was that their lame friend could walk. I think as disciples of Jesus Christ, there's no better mission we can have than to take up the mission of Jesus Himself, right? Our mission should be that God would use us so that the lost will be found and saved. Our mission should be that we would be ambassadors for Christ so that those who are far away from God can come near and find new life in Jesus. But listen, these men didn't just have a mission. These men also had an eager expectation. They had an eager expectation. They didn't just have some mission statement hanging on the wall at home. It was written on their hearts. It moved them to action. They had an eager expectation that maybe... Just maybe, if they could get their friend to Jesus, Jesus could help him. These men literally took a dare on Jesus. They risked their reputation. They risked whoever's house that was that dug a hole in the roof getting mad at him. They risked angering the religious leaders. They took a risk. You know, when I think about taking a risk, when I think about taking a dare on God, I think about some of the heroes of the faith, men like Joshua. Remember Joshua in the Old Testament? I mean, here Moses has led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness and they're on the, on the cusp of the promised land and Moses has to take that baton of leading the Israelites into the promised land and he hands it off to Joshua. Here's young Joshua, second in command. And now he's been given this task by God to lead the people into this land to, to combat the inhabitants there and to inhabit this land to fulfill a promise God made Abraham 400 years before. That's a pretty big job, isn't it? He's got some big shoes to fill. He's got some enormous expectations to meet. It's no wonder God had to tell him in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In other words, God is saying, Josh, I know you're risking a lot to step into this role. He says, I know it's going to require you to take a dare on me. And if we're going to get this people into this place, you're going to have to trust me. You think about Joshua's leadership and this enormous God-sized task that God gave him. I mean, the first thing they do when they get into the promised land is they come up against this enormous, heavily fortified, strategic Canaanite city called, anybody know? Jericho. And they stand before Jericho, a huge obstacle in their way, and God gives them this amazing, epic battle plan. I mean, this is like Lord of the Rings, final battle, awesome, go-against-the-death-star kind of stuff, right? So you know what the plan is? March around the city for seven days, and on the last day, blow trumpets and scream real loud. Woo! No battering ram. No ladder to scale the walls. No flaming arrows. No lasers. None of that. 
Can you imagine trying to explain this battle plan to your men? All right, men, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march, yeah, around the city, yeah, once a day for seven days, yeah, and on the last day seven times, okay, and we're going to blow our trumpets, uh uh-huh, and we're going to scream real loud. What? What? Why are we going to do this? And Joshua said, because God said so. And they did it. You know what happened? The walls fell down. I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember Elijah? The one prophet of God in all of the land. And he comes up against these 400 false prophets. They worship the God Baal. And he says, you know what? Let's go up on this mountain and you build an altar to Baal. I'm going to build an altar to the Lord God. We're going to put sacrifices on it. We're going to pray. And whichever God sends the fire down from heaven, that's the God that the people will follow. And the prophets of Baal said, you're on. Let's do it. And so they get their altar ready. They put their wood and their animal on it. And they start dancing around that altar. And they start praying. And they start crying out to Baal. And nothing happens. Now, Elijah, I like Elijah. Elijah's having a little bit of fun here, right? He kind of starts to mock them. And he says, hey, hey, you know, maybe you need to scream a little bit louder. He can't hear you. So they get louder. He says, maybe, maybe your God went on a vacation. Maybe he's out of town. Maybe he's, uh, you know, he's busy. Maybe he stepped into the bathroom. Scream louder. And so they just get all worked up into a frenzy. And they get louder and they get faster. They start cutting themselves. It's really kind of a depressing story when you think about it. And then Elijah says, move over, guys. Let me show you how it's done. He says, bring the wood, bring the animal, dig a trench around it. And now I want you to pour on the water, keep the water coming, get it drenched, douse it good till the trenches around it fill up with water. And then he goes over here and he kneels down to pray. And he says, God, it's just me up here against all these false prophets. I need you to show your glory today. I need you to come and do what only you can do, God. You know what happened? Whoosh! Fire fell from heaven and burnt up everything. And you know what the people did? They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, surely He alone is God. Elijah took a risk. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three friends of Daniel in Daniel chapter 3, these young men that worship and serve the Lord God, they're in exile with the people of God in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar has built this huge statue. And he said, you know what? You've got to bow down and worship me at this statue when you hear the music. And so the music played and these three guys didn't bow down. And so King Nebuchadnezzar came and said, what are you all doing? They said, we will not bow down to anyone but the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. So we know if you don't, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace and you're going to die. They said, we don't care. Our hearts are God's alone. We will not bow to you. We believe our God will save us. That's some pretty good faith, isn't it? But you know what the real indicator of the faith is? Then they said, but you know what? Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to anybody but him. They took a risk. They had faith. Hebrews 10.39 says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. These were men that did not shrink back. And then in the very next chapter, Hebrews 11, there's this long litany of men and women who did not shrink back, but they stood firm in their faith. They took a risk. When was the last time you took a risk on God? When's the last time you stepped out in faith? 
You know, the guys in this passage had an eager expectation that their friend would walk. But let's be honest, it was more just a hunch, really, wasn't it? I mean, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there were far more questions about this miracle-working preacher from Nazareth than there were answers, right? They didn't really know Jesus. They just had a hunch that Jesus would heal him. Listen, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ today, we've got far more than just a hunch, don't we? We've got the testimony of the Word of God. We've got the witness of His Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus is who He says He is. And Jesus can do what only Jesus can do. Amen? Does that expectation, does that eagerness in your heart, does it drive you forward? Does it move you to action? Because if it's just a doctrine up here in your head and it's never made it down here to your heart, you have to ask yourself, are you really a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you just have information in your head? Or have you experienced transformation in your heart? Because that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to transform your heart and He wants your faith to move your feet forward. We can't just be cheerleaders. We've got to be contributors. We've got to be partners with God and ambassadors for Christ. Like Joshua standing before Jericho, like Daniel's three friends facing that fiery furnace, like Elijah up on Mount Carmel. These men had an obstacle. They had a mission. They had an eager expectation. But then they faced an obstacle. We all face obstacles, right? You know, if if you're like me, sometimes you feel like the universe is out to get you. You know? Maybe you've said, when it rains, it pours, right? You ever said that? Or if you're like me, you quote Murphy's Law all the time. Murphy's Law says, if something can go wrong... It will go wrong. Well, these men were kind of in that sort of situation. They try to bring their paralyzed friend, carry him in on a mat to Jesus, and they get to the door and they can't get in. The crowd's too big. And if they were anything like we tend to be, they would just throw up the white flag and surrender. You know, I mean, if this were us, we'd be like, well, I guess God closed the door. It wasn't His timing. Right? We start speaking this Christianese stuff. We start talking about closed doors, right? I guess the Lord doesn't want this to happen. I'm just going to have to go a different way. You have to forget about it. Listen, I want to be brutally honest with you today. And I'm not saying that God doesn't open doors and close doors. He certainly does. But for most of us, this talk about an open door, it's just sanctified talk to excuse ourselves from taking the path of least resistance, right? Let's be honest. We just want an excuse to not have to do the hard stuff. And if things get too hard, we just say, oh, God's closed the door. Can you imagine if the Apostle Paul only walked through open doors the way we define it? Half the New Testament wouldn't have been written. Flogged, beaten, arrested, shipwrecked. Do those sound like open doors to you? No. They were obstacles in his way. The truth is, sometimes when there's a closed door, you know what that means? You need to dig a hole in the roof. Sometimes you see a closed door, you need to kick it down. Improvise. Find another way of getting your friend to Jesus. Don't just throw up your hands and give up and say, oh well, this must be a closed door, never mind. Because guess what? If you're trying to share Jesus with someone, if you're trying to make an eternal difference in somebody's lives, you know what the devil's going to do? He's going to put obstacles in your way. 
He's going to slam doors in your face because He doesn't want you to succeed. So don't throw up your hands and quit because things are standing in your way that are making it harder than you thought it was going to be. Dig a hole in the roof and get your friends to Jesus no matter what it takes. Amen? These men had an obstacle, but they did what it took to overcome it. And the last thing, these men got more than they bargained for. See, Jesus knew what was in the heart of these Pharisees. He knew what this man needed. He knew what was in the heart of the Pharisees. And he wanted to show these Pharisees that the Son of Man had authority to forgive sin. So Jesus both healed the man physically, which is what his friends were after, but then Jesus also healed the man spiritually. See, what were the, what were the friends hoping for? They were hoping for their friend to be able to walk, right? They thought that the greatest need for their friend is that he needed to walk. They were focused on the external. But Jesus saw the man's inner posture. Jesus saw the internal struggle this man had with sin. And that's the beautiful thing. You've got to look at the order of what Jesus did here. Jesus forgave the man's sin first. And then he healed him so he could walk. These men got more than they bargained for. They got a friend that only could walk. They got a friend who was new from the inside out. His life was changed forever. Listen, we are so bad at settling for the mundane when Jesus wants to do the miraculous. We are so quick to settle for what we think we can accomplish instead of thinking, I need to bring my friend to Jesus so that Jesus can do what only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus can change a life for eternity. Only Jesus can change a family tree and a trajectory in somebody's life. Only Jesus can do that. And when we bring our friends to Jesus, we need to bring them in faith that He can do far more in their life than we could ever think or imagine. The greatest miracles Jesus works are in our hearts. At some point, you and I, we're both the paralytic on the mat. At some point in our lives, we were the ones that someone else needed to bring to Jesus. Maybe this morning you're still that paralyzed man or woman spiritually. Maybe this morning for the first time you're realizing, you know, my friends keep trying to bring me to church because they think I need Jesus. Yes, that's right. They want you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. They believe that you need something the world cannot give you. You need the power of Jesus Christ working in your life. Somebody has looked at every one of us, if we're believers, and they've said, you know what? My mission in life is to see that person come to faith in Christ. If you're a believer here today, you were that man on the mat. You had a friend who brought you to Jesus. And you know what? They probably faced some obstacles, didn't they? Maybe it was your pride. Maybe it was the circumstances in your life. Maybe you didn't have anything to do with God. And, and you resisted it. And you know what they did? They persisted. They dug a hole in the roof. They did everything they could to bring you to Jesus. Who's your one this morning? Is it a friend? A parent? A child? A classmate? Jesus told his disciples if they would follow him, he would give them the greatest mission they could ever imagine. Jesus said, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He's saying, you've spent your whole life fishing right here. You follow me, I'm going to lead you to do something even greater than that. I would say that it's time for us to get off the sidelines, church. 
Stop cheering and start fishing. Let's start moving the ball down the field. Let's cast our nets. Who is your one? Who are you going to go after? Who's the one person that you most want to see God do something in them that only God can do? Who's your one? And this morning, as I said last week, maybe you are somebody's one. Maybe you are that paralytic man on the mat. And you need to come to Jesus today. You need to follow Him and let Him forgive your sins and give you a new heart. I love the way Sally put it. Maybe you need a reboot. Jesus is the one who can reboot your life. Whatever God has led on your heart today, I hope you'll come. I'll be standing down front to receive you, to pray with you. Whatever you need to do today, I pray that you'll be obedient. Let's stand together and pray. Father, you are an infinitely gracious and patient God. You are slow to anger. You are compassionate and long-suffering. And you desire nothing more than to forgive our sins, to heal us from the inside out, to change our hearts and reboot our lives if we would but come and trust our lives to you. And I, I, I think there's probably somebody here today that needs to do that. They need to come and they need to turn their, the keys of their life over to you and let you do amazing work in their heart. I pray they would come today. Maybe there's someone here today, Lord, that needs to unite with this church family. They need to come and publicly profess their faith through baptism. Or like me, maybe there's people out here today that just need to recommit once more to get off the sidelines and start doing the work of the kingdom to bring our friends to Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.